This is Eli Lake, and you are listening to The Re-Education. The theme of the show today is apologies. My guest is Abe Foxman, the former national director of the Anti-Defamation League. A little over a year ago, a talented young journalist named Alexi McCammond was about to start an exciting job as the editor of Teen Vogue. She had made her name covering politics for Axios and was now about to lead a prestigious Condé Nast publication. She was just 27 years old and on her way to stardom. And then it unraveled. Ten years earlier, when McCammond was a high school senior, she tweeted some things she's come to regret. There were off-color remarks about Asians. She denigrated gays. The internet dug up a photo of her dressed as a Native American. 2019, McCammond had apologized on her Twitter feed about some of those earlier tweets, but they resurfaced after Condé Nast announced her as the new editor of Teen Vogue. McCammond apologized again. She met with the staff of the magazine to hear them out. She made it clear that she deplored her past tweets. This is not who she was, but it wasn't enough. A few advertisers began to walk away. Some Teen Vogue writers tweeted out their opposition to hiring McCammond. Sorry, wasn't going to cut it. Alexi McCammon would have to pay for the sins of her 17-year-old self on a Twitter account that hardly anyone knew about at the time. The job offer was rescinded. You had worked with her. She had just been named uh, editor of Teen Vogue. Yeah. Um, that relationship has ended even before it really began because of tweets uh, that were considered racist by some that she wrote when she was a teenager. She has apologized for them profusely. Um, and today she is without a job. Get your reflections on her. Yeah, Alexi's a really, I mean, I, I'm, I was just really sad to see this happen. I've, I've worked with her for four years. She doesn't have a racist bone in her body. And, you know, I, I said this yesterday. I mean, if we can't, as an industry, accept somebody's sincere and repeated apologies for something they tweeted when they were 17 years old, I mean, what are we doing? This kind of story has become all too familiar. We know it as cancel culture. A public figure usually comes under scrutiny for something they said or posted on social media. Then an online mob assembles to express great umbrage. Contrition is demanded. Apology is often offered. And the apology is almost always rejected. Cancellation is not new. In 1987, there was an infamous Nightline interview with Al Campanis, a vice president of the Los Angeles Dodgers organization. Ted Koppel asked him why there were no black managers in the major leagues. This is what he said. You know that that's a lot of baloney. I mean, there, there are a lot of black <laughs> players, there are a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, let's say, a field manager or perhaps a, a general manager. You really believe that? Well, I don't say that they're all of them, but there certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? 
It, it same yeah, but thing I mean, applies. you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago about players when they when they were saying, ah, not 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 really, not well, really um, cut out. You remember the days, you know, hit a black football player in the knees, and you know, no, that really sounds like garbage. If you if you forget no, what I'm saying, so it's not it's not garbage, Mr. Koppel, because uh, I played on a on a college team, and the center fielder was black, and then the backfield at NYU with a fullback who was black. Never knew the difference of whether he was black or white. We were teammates. So it just might be that they, they why are, are black men or black people not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Oh, I, 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 it, it may just be that they don't have access to all the country clubs and the pools. But I'll tell you what, let's take a break. Yikes. After the LA Times rushed to get those comments in the next day's paper, his fate was sealed. He too apologized. But 48 hours later, Al Campanis resigned in disgrace. He lived for another decade, but never worked in Major League Baseball again. When he wrote a memoir, no major publishers would touch it. Al Campanis was canceled. Alexi McCammon is an easy case. It's deeply unfair to punish someone for stray tweets from their late adolescence, especially since McCammon had already deleted and disavowed them. Canceling McCammon revealed gracelessness from her accusers and cowardice from her would-be employer. It was just another scalp for the mob. Campanus, though, is a harder case. He said something truly deplorable, even for 1987. What's more, his firing was an important signal to Major League Baseball back in the late 1980s that the old ways needed to change. It's fair to argue that the swift and brutal justice for Campanus sparked necessary reform, Major League Baseball soon after hired the black sociologist Harry Edwards to work on bringing more minorities into its executive ranks. Today, there are more black executives in Major League Baseball, though there are only two managers in 2022. But no team owner or league official today would ever say something as racist as what Campana said in 1987. In 2012, Ted Koppel, reflecting on the incident in an interview with ESPN, said Campanis, quote, curiously may have led to more advances in racial equality in professional sports than anything he could have said that would have been unnoticed. Now, at the same time, this was unfair to Campanis. It's unfair that this interview has defined him. As the roommate and friend of Jackie Robinson, the first black player in the major leagues, he took a courageous stand against the venomous bigotry of that era when it counted. Campanis was wrong in 1987, but he was also repentant. After the MLB hired Edwards, Campanis was one of the first people to reach out and ask what he could do to help. He didn't get a raw deal, Edwards said to ESPN. He got the deal he ordered up, but he was one of the most honorable men in the whole process, and he handled it with class, with conscientiousness, and with courage. Campanis, in this respect, is an exception. Most people who are canceled do not reflect and repent. They wonder why they apologized in the first place. For figures like Donald Trump and his many imitators, being canceled now is a badge of honor. Contrition is weakness. Sorry is for losers. Are you offended? Good. In 1987, the canceling of Campanis helped spur reform for baseball. Today, though, most cancellations have fueled a Manichaean culture war. Instead of reform, the cancel mobs have created backlash. 
What if the institutions so whipsawed today by online umbrage began to accept apologies again? And what if the activists so set on canceling people sought to change the minds and hearts of those who offend their constituencies? Consider Jesse Jackson, civil rights activist and politician who ran for president twice in the 1980s. At the beginning of the primary season in 1984, Jackson made remarks to Milton Coleman, a black Washington Post reporter he had hoped would remain off the record. They revealed an animus towards Jewish people. He called New York City Town. A few weeks later, Coleman printed the slur in his newspaper, and all hell broke loose. Here's Eddie Murphy's parody of the incident. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jesse Jackson. And I was recently quoted in the Washington Post as referring to a certain group of people as Jaime's. <laughs> they also said that I called New York Jaime Town. I realize that kind of talk isn't kosher. <laughs> At first, Jesse Jackson denied he said the slur. And then he dug his hole deeper, blaming the Jews for trying to sabotage his campaign. Eventually, Jackson began to reconsider. At the 1984 Democratic Convention, Jesse Jackson offered, in my view, the most eloquent apology in modern American political history. If in my little moments, in word, deed, or attitude, through some error of temper, taste, or tone, I've caused anyone discomfort, created pain, or revived someone's fears, that was not my truest self. If there were occasions when my grape turned into a raisin, and my jaw bell lost its resonance, please forgive me. Charge it to my head and not to my heart. I am my head so limited in its finitude, my heart which is boundless in its love for the human family. I am not a, pup, a perfect servant. I am a public servant, doing my best against the odds as I develop and serve, be patient. God is not finished with me yet. Away from the spotlight, Abe Foxman, then the national director of the Anti-Defamation League, reached out to Jackson. In an interview with me in 2019, Foxman told me that it was a long process to overcome the skepticism of many in the Jewish community, that Jackson's repentance was sincere. Over time, his conversations with Jackson paid off. The Reverend's heart changed. He began to understand how his words and attitudes about Jewish people were wrong. This did not mean that Jackson embraced the mainstream pro-Israel position of the American Jewish community, nor did it mean that Jesse Jackson did not make more mistakes in his career in public life. But Foxman's persistence and outreach turned a foe of American Jews into an ally. For more than three decades, Jesse Jackson has been an outspoken opponent of anti-Semitism. He has visited Auschwitz. When Foxman retired in 2015, one of the video tributes to his career came from a man who once called New York Jaime Town. Now imagine if Foxman and the Jewish community demanded that Jackson be forever banned from polite society. 
There were millions of Americans inspired by Jackson's presidential campaigns. If his heart had hardened, he would be a martyr. For his followers, Jackson's anti-Semitism would be a mark of his independence and fighting spirit. Today, almost anyone can be canceled for the slightest transgression, and the cancelers do not apply their pressure with a sense of fairness and humility. This means that often punishing bigotry ends up creating more bigots. So offer the offender a way out of their predicament. Seek and accept an apology. It may not always be sincere, but a little grace can turn the hardest of hearts. Just ask Abe Foxman or Jesse Jackson. Well, we are joined now with a real hero of the Jewish community, the former national director of the Anti-Defamation League, Abe Foxman. Thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thanks for asking me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. So let's get into it. I wanted to ask about if you could talk a little bit about your outreach to Jesse Jackson in 1984 after he made his anti-Semitic remarks at the beginning of the Democratic primary. Well, I've always been motivated or guided by the principle of changing people's minds and hearts. I always believe that's my mission. My mission is not to exclude them, not to punish them, not to make them martyrs, not to cancel them, as, as is being more done today. And so in that guiding spirit, which, you know, I've been, my role with the ADL was basically to try to educate against hate. And part of educating against hate is, is trying to change people's minds and hearts. And so when it became public, I reached out. And it took a while with a lot of intermediaries who weren't sure, you know, what my purposes were, whether I was, it was a good faith, et cetera. And we, we did finally communicate and we finally talked to each other. And I think he understood, began to understand the impact of his words and looked for an opportunity to, to come off it without hurting his image and hurting his credibility. And it did work on my, I had a major dinner in the city of New York at the Waldorf with 1,500 people. And one of the people paying tribute was Jesse Jackson. It, you know, it surprised a lot of people. But at, at the same time, I think we all benefited. We all benefited. He learned to understand what, what it was, how it hurt the Jewish community, and in fact hurt him and, and found a way and found a way back. You know, I, I'll tell you, I'll go from that. Do you remember President Bush with the loan guarantees? Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. When there was, there was an issue between the State of Israel and the United States about loan guarantees, and the United States tried to put conditions, no settlements for loan guarantees. It was an issue of absorbing Soviet Jewry. Israel needed funding. And so the Jewish community had an event in Washington. And then the president had a press conference and said, poor little old me standing against these thousands of, of Jews. And it, it reverberated because it sounded like, you know, one of these anti-Semitic Jews against uh, the president. And I remember reaching out to then Chief of Staff Sununu, and I went over to the White House and explained to him what it meant, because I don't think they, they even realized the impact. And there, too, within 48 hours, the president reached out um, 
to the president of the Conference of Presidents, had a meeting with the Jewish community, and and we, and we moved past it. So, uh, you know, again, if there's a will, and and, and a lot of a lot of prejudice sometimes comes out of ignorance, out of stress of the moment. And if both sides are willing to find a way out, I think it's possible and available. I still do, despite despite the the popularity of cancel culture. I want to ask you more about Jesse Jackson. First, how long did the process take? Because by the Democratic convention, he delivered what I thought was a very eloquent apology. Was the process complete by then, or were you still working? <laughs> well, that's very interesting. It depends on the individual. It depends yeah. how deep it comes. It depends when yeah. it serves interests and political interest. Most of my encounters were actually in the celebrity field. Okay. You know, the Michael Jacksons, the Madonna, mm-hmm. the John Galliano. And and there it, it becomes more difficult because they have intermediaries. It's usually their agents and their lawyers. And most of the time I get a call from from the agent. You know, he didn't mean it, he didn't say it. And 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 then the process would start. Well, well, how do we get off this? How do we change it? From our perspective, from our perspective, while it's impossible to get into the heart and soul and mind of the individual, it doesn't serve. You know, it's like selling Wheaties. If you're a celebrity and you're a bigot, then you make bigotry acceptable or respectable. And so, from where I sat, is okay. I, I can't crawl into the gut, into the mind. But if that individual is willing to publicly, publicly say that they were wrong, they made a mistake, they've learned, et cetera, I was willing to enter into that process. Now, usually the lawyers or the agents would say, tell me what you want him to say. And I said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, um, no, I want, I want a process. I want a learning process. I want to be able to, to discuss. And so I, I remember when when Michael Jackson did that recording of Jew me, sue me, what are you going to do me? And and the roof came in. And and so right away, when I criticized, the agents reached out to the lawyers, and they started sending me drafts. And I said, no, I want to talk to Michael Jackson. I want whatever whatever comes out, I want to hear it from him. I want to hear him say that he understands uh, that it's bigotry, that it's prejudice, that it hurts. And we did. We had a conversation. Then I got a letter, and he wanted to have a press conference. And um, my children said to me, don't do it, Dad. He'll be here 15 minutes in the sun, and only so we did. But we exchanged letters and, and press releases. I remember a, a, a Rick Sanchez, who was a broadcaster. No, oh, I remember that, yeah. Remember it? So he yeah. was fired for all kinds of reasons. And in an interview, he said, well, it's because the Jews controlled the media. And I remember I publicly condemned, and then his lawyers, his friends reached out and said, would you meet with him? And I said, sure. And Rick came to the office, and we had a conversation, and he said to me, well, I was inarticulate. And I said, no, Rick, you were very articulate. Sadly enough, you knew exactly what you were saying. It's not you used the wrong word. You said you were fired because the Jews controlled the media. That's an old canard of Jewish control and Jewish power. And so there the process was a little different. He said, okay, um, how do I re-educate? I gave him a list of books. We met several times. But then he couldn't get a job. And then, oh. then I was concerned because, you know, if someone acts bigotry in whatever manner and is willing to walk it back and then continues to be punished, 
I lose my ability to change people's minds and hearts because then, you know, it doesn't help. And I remember we went to a Yankee game and we sat in the seat of, uh, what's his name? Um, Alex Rodriguez. Right. So we sat in Alex Rodriguez's seat. We took pictures. We posted them to show that he's okay. He eventually got a, a job. I think the toughest, you don't always win. You don't always succeed. Yeah. was John Galliano. Remember John Galliano? Yeah. Well, who was a uh, designer. And Galliano had an addiction problem, uh, drugs and liquor. And whenever he got drunk, he went off the, off the rails. And on one occasion in a bar, said some horrific things to a Jewish woman. The Jewish woman went public. And, and he, he was hurt. He was, you know, canceled and hurt. And some of his friends who knew him for, for many, many years, including Jonathan um, Newhouse, from the Newhouse uh, magazine chain, reached out to me and said, listen, John's a good guy. He's got a problem. He wants, he wants to, he wants to make up. He wants to change. Would you meet with him? And I did met with him several times, introduced him to a rabbi, started studying about Judaism, studied about the Holocaust. And ironically, he was never forgiven. He was never forgiven. And that's, that's another problem. I think we need to be able to if we if we ask people to change their minds and hearts, we have to be able to say, okay, change our minds and hearts. Yes, yes, right. yes, and, yeah. and, and forgive. Now again, there's no guarantee. There's no. But if somebody asks for forgiveness and we act on it, and then they return, <laughs> then you punish them. Then you seriously. Yeah. But but if you don't provide. A, a way and an avenue and, a, and a, an approach for people to 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 ask for forgiveness and be forgiven, then you lose the ability to even ask them. And I want to. I just want to clarify something that I, I don't want to give any kind of credence to to, to anti semites. But when you are doing this, you are talking about anti semitism. You are not asking for to endorse policy positions with regards to Israel. And I just want to make sure that you can sort of distinguish because Jesse Jackson, after the intervention, was excellent when he would talk about the Holocaust. He visited Auschwitz. He was very good on anti-Semitism, but he remained somebody who was on the progressive side, Israel policy. And that's okay. I just want to make sure. I want yeah, to- that's okay, except right. it becomes their preoccupation. Except when it becomes toxic, but yeah. I, you know, some... You know, some say I love Jews. I don't like Zionists. Okay, at the end of the day, that basically is, usually turns out to be a tension. But no, you're absolutely right. That's not a precondition. But neither is the precondition to say I love. You know, I hate Israel, but I love Jews. That right. doesn't really either. And to you know, so it, it it works both ways, and it has to be. But absolutely, they can have different political views. God bless them. That's what we're all about. I just want to. But so, but that must have been you know, as you were doing these kinds of things, that must have been very important to you to sort of distinguish between, no, 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 that's a political decision. Because, I mean, if it had just been loan guarantees with George H.W. Bush and he hadn't made the remark, it really wouldn't have been in your basket, right? Correct. We disagree and we can disagree and we can argue about the merits or not. But it's, it's, it's when it took that next step that saying that our disagreement was such that, that he expressed himself, I don't think he understood that it was anti-Semitism. Right. But once it was explained, but absolutely, then we went back to the issue of long guarantees. Let's fast forward to the present. 
today we have what might be called a kind of cultural death sentences being handed out very swiftly. Are you concerned about this trend where somebody says a little something, there's a public apology, it only chums the water. Are, are you worried about a kind of backlash that it's opening up the space for true bigotry to thrive? Yeah, I, I, I am very worried. A, because we lose the opportunity to educate, to shed light on it. But, but Eli, we have a bigger problem, and, and that is we've lost truth. And, you know, yeah. lost a lot of things about uh, former President Trump. To me, the, the worst thing that he did to our society is destroy truth mm. and, and damage media. Because all these things are the big lie. The stereotypes are a lie. The answer to the lie is the truth. When you destroy the truth, then how do you challenge, how do you answer, how do you combat the bigotry? And that's what we have. So, And today, people are very quick to dismiss people. I think if, if we lose the ability to educate, we lose the ability to rehabilitate. We lose the ability of, of, of good people still being able to contribute. I, I experienced it not too long ago in a, in a bizarre case. There was a story about Michael Steinhardt in the New York Times. I was interviewed. I was asked about Michael, and I said, I know him all these years. I don't, I don't believe he, you know, he's guilty of, of foul mouth, of, but he's not guilty of any of these things. And I even understand what motivates him when he wants when he wants Jews to have children, and that's the whole issue of continuity. We've lost, you know, six million. We lost a million, and I was canceled. I was really an honorary degree from Hebrew Union College. Oh my! Um, and I was approached by the ex-president. The president said, "Unless I publicly, publicly retract what I said, saying that you know something positive about Michael Steinart, they will withdraw." The, the honorary degree. And I said, you know, very strange. You're honoring me for 50 years of service to the Jewish people. And during those 50 years, I guarantee you that at least 10 times I was critical of the reform movement. <laughs> and yet you were giving me this, this honorary degree. And, and so, yeah. And also at the same time, I was a, a part-time employee of the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And I was suspended for five weeks for my interview in the New York Times, which said something positive about somebody which, you know, was being attacked. So, yeah. That is, uh, I did not know that. That's extraordinary that the elements of the Jewish community would cancel you because I don't think that there's an appreciation for the kind of work that you have done in trying to kind of, I mean, I see it like this. It's intimidation, Eli. It's yeah. Fear. It's intimidation. I, I would even say what's happening on the college campuses. Yeah, um, is is you know the campuses they haven't turned against Israel, but the ad administration is so intimidated that it will not invite Israeli speakers, and when they come, they don't advertise them. And to me, that's part of cancel culture as well: the intimidation of the fear of the minority mob, if you will who threaten chaos or disorder or unlawfulness, and that's as dangerous as canceling. Do you think that there's a symbiosis, if you will, a kind of relationship between people who are using canceling as a weapon and too quickly, and then they're using, they're, they're turning to the weapon too quickly, and then other people who are simply tuning out and saying, all right, I'm not going to play by any of those rules. Right. So that you, you sort of see a Manichaean divide. 
Yeah, and we're losing on all sides. Right. But I, I worry more about intimidating the good people right. who are afraid to stand up, even when they feel, you know, it goes beyond First Amendment freedom and freedom of speech. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, most of these decisions today are political, politically motivated. Of course. Bad, politically motivated. Fine. Entitled. It's an interest. You're entitled to us. But what I fear is, so I, I take my example. You know, nobody in the in the Hebrew Union College community stood up and said, what happened to Abe Foxman's honorary degree? Okay. So it, it, that's, that's worse. It's the bystanders who are intimidated and don't have the courage to stand up because maybe they're going to be, they're going to be canceled for standing up for somebody who's canceled. Right. I, I, so I, I am now, I see, I see what you're saying that there it's, it's all of us. It's not just right, right. The, 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 the activist I, and the target. Yeah. I remember several years ago, there was this whole explosion about commencement speakers and all of a sudden commencement speakers were being attacked. I remember a whole bunch of them that there's always a few people where they didn't like something. Somebody said, I was um, offered an honorary degree at Central college. Suffolk University in, in Boston, and the Arab group took on the campaign uh, to take away my honorary degree. And my first reaction was, I, I don't need it. You know, I can live without it. <laughs> I didn't have it, and it's fine. And I called the president, and I said, look, I don't want to disturb. This is a very precious moment to hundreds of your students' families. I don't want to make a, an incident. And the president pleaded with me, and he said, please come. We need part of our education system is to stand up to differences, to respect the differences. And if you don't come, you will, you will permit this bigot or whatever extremist to have his way. He happened to have been the number one law, uh, law student that graduated. He happened to be the head of a pro-Palestinian organization. And I'll never forget when he got his degree, I stood up from my chair, I approached him, embraced him, congratulated him, and said, Mahmoud, I've just destroyed your radicality. He didn't know what to do. He embraced me back. <laughs> but, but that passed. But, you know, it's still out there. I am sure that universities today, before they offer an honorary degree or before they invite a speaker, don't talk about merit, <laughs> worthiness, right. value, but they ask the question, who will protest? Will there be a problem? And that's where the decisions are made. And that's very, very, very sad. I just want to end the interview here and just talk about how, in your experience in reaching out to people, are you an optimist about the sort of state of the human soul to learn and grow and to turn one's heart? Which it seems like at the end of the day, the problem with canceling too quickly is that you don't give the opportunity for someone to change. And yeah. do you think that people, that there is that capacity a lot of the time or most of the time, or maybe less? Or yeah, Eli, you're absolutely, I, it, it's, we miss the opportunity to shed light and, and, and value rather than, than anger and hate. And look, Golda Meir once said that the Jewish people don't have the luxury of being pessimists. Oh, I survived as a child from the Holocaust when a hundred a million and a half Jewish children perished. So I don't have that luxury to be a pessimist. All my life, I tried to, to bring about change, to change people's minds and hearts. I believe it, it's doable. It's doable. More people hate 
and care than than uh, more people love and care than hate. But one has to one has to make it a value. One has to make it worthwhile. And and so yeah, I I, I do worry, but I I am optimistic at the end of the day. But Eli, what what worries me is I don't know how one brings back the truth. I don't know how one brings back credibility to you mm. guys. The world of journalism, journalism educated. It exposed, it even shamed when necessary. Shaming is fine. Canceling is not fine. And so we've lost instruments in our society. Right. I I think to some extent, and it's for another discussion, the internet has already, while it has given us so much education, uh, communication, exposure, it's got a dark underbelly and it has already destroyed, destroyed privacy. It's on its way to destroy civility. And we need civility for democracy. Civility guides us with respect, with understanding, with empathy. Cancel culture is not respected. It's not empathy. It just closes the door and shuts down our democratic classes. Could not have said it better. Thank you so much, Abe Boxman. As I said, a true hero of the Jewish people. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been very lucky and privileged. Thank you. Keep speaking out. I will. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.